Hello and welcome to Philosophy Mixed. My name is Kimberly Clay and with me is Dr. Rebecca Farinas of the Texas State Philosophy Department. And today we are happy to welcome our guests, Dr. Adam Key, a speech instructor, debate coach, and director of prison debate at Lee College Huntsville Center, the oldest and largest prison college system in Texas. We also have with us Jonathan Lawler, an MA lecturer at the Philosophy Department at Texas State University, and Cesar Bernal of the Philosophy Department here at the university as well. Thank you very much for joining us. Today we'd like to continue our investigation of justice and justice reform in the United States prison court system by looking at higher education in prison and um, with um, Cesar and Jonathan, we're going to investigate some work they're doing with um, juveniles as far as um, high school education. Our look at teaching at feminism in women's prisons last podcast taught us that prisoners are compassionate learners. And their time in prison, when spent involved in education, is fruitful, not only to improving their lives and helping eradicate recidivism, but is enlightening for our communities, specifically in terms of changing the way we think of the dangerousness of prisons and our philosophy of punishment in general. Today we continue on that track by talking to our guests about college education, and high school education with male prisoners and at-risk juveniles, specifically in relation to learning by means of critical thinking and communication. So, as we do with Philosophy Mixed, I would like to pull a quote from Plato's Republic on justice and education. Plato wrote, education is not what the professions of certain men assert it to be. They presumably assert that they put into the soul knowledge that isn't in it. And through they were putting sight into blind eyes. But the present argument, on the other hand, indicates that this power is in the soul of each and that the instrument with which each learns, just as an eye is not able to turn towards the light from the dark, without the whole body, must be turned around from what is coming into being together with the whole soul until it is able to endure looking at that which is and the brightest part of that which is. So now let's turn our guests for some contemporary insights into the problems of our prison systems and education today. Our first question um, specifically is for Dr. Key, but I hope everyone might have some comments Mm -hmm. on methods to engage prisoners as intelligent students rather than prisoners, since all of you have some experience in that kind of field. So our first question for all of you, specifically Dr. Key, your students taught you about humor through reverse mentoring. Uh, Criminals are often thought to have a lack of empathy within the uh, eye of our society in the sense that humor takes a natural empathy to express humor, what, would you say that humor is a sign of character or character building? Absolutely. The fact is, we have these ideas about what prisoners are, who really who prisoners are, and we assume that they're always already violent, that they're irredeemable savages, and that they're in prison because 
we need to be kept away from them, or rather they need to be kept away from us because they're dangerous. And the reason we, we continue to believe these things is because most people have no contact with the person who's a prisoner. So we rely on the news, of which there's very little about prison and almost always negative, but mostly we rely on media, whether it's Shawshank Redemption or Orange is the New Black. So we watch these shows and these movies, and we assume that that's how prisoners are. The fact is, prisoners have humor and empathy and feelings and dreams, just like all of us. The fundamental difference between them and us is that they've made some mistakes in life and are incarcerated because of those. But yes, they, they certainly have all those things. Yeah, and and that, that's something I think we've figured out with our time at the you know at the Hayes County Center. Um, so when we first started doing this was with the sort of uh, juveniles that are on parole, right? And they, they live at home and they come up to the center to work on their GEDs. And during their education time, we sort of you know started to work with them and teach them philosophy. And we, we got to know them pretty well. And we've done the same with now the long-term population that, that lives in dorms at the, the Hayes County Youth Center. And, you know, we go in from, from day one, right? We, we, we go in and they, they come in, they're laughing, they're cutting up, right? They're, they're doing all the things that are, you know, at least for me, right? So I'm an MA lecturer here. So they, they act the same way that my students do in, in my classroom. Actually, the only difference would be is they're a bit more dedicated than my students in, in my classroom <laughs> here, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, so it... It's nice to be able to spend some time at the beginning before before getting into lectures and things like that, actually interacting with them as as people because, you know, like like you said, they spend so much time being told that they're kind of not human, right? Or they, they lack these qualities like humor and empathy that, you know, movies tend to tell us that they, they lack, right? And it's uh, something they actually internalize and it's it's hard for them to overcome that, I think, because so many people don't show them empathy, right? And, and that's kind of our, our first task was when we, we met up with, with Wayne Thomas, right? He said, you know, you're going to have to get these kids to trust you. You're, you're going to have to act like a fool a little bit and get them interested and have them warm up because if you come in there sort of acting like, you know, a stiff professor type, right? They're just going to kind of reject you. Yeah, because you know? that's what they're used to. They're yeah. used to someone coming in there and being very authoritative. Yeah. Um, and so coming in there with a bit more empathy, a bit more humor does change the dynamic, um, especially as far as how conversations go. They do feel more comfortable as far as, you know, letting out what they want to say and what they're interested in doing. Um, so I definitely think the, the humor part is, is huge. Um, when it comes to this type of discussion. What, what I'm impressed by, you know, what you were talking about, the fact is they are in a harsh environment and the fact that they're still able to find humor in things in such a harsh mm -hmm. environment is that they do internalize things. I mean, no matter how smart you think you are, if you had someone going around behind you all day going, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid, eventually you're going to believe them. Mm -hmm. And they're constantly surrounded by an environment which treats them as less than human, treats them as a number or a cog a machine. The fact that they can find humor in those situations, I, I think, is the best evidence of empathy to have it not just in a normal situation, but in an impressive one. Yeah. And, and what's really, I, I think that I really like about what the, the Hayes County Center has done is we were actually talking to uh, Joel Ware today, you know, one of the directors of the long-term uh, students, 
Um, he was telling us how just a few years ago it was still the boot camp style type detention center, right? Mm. Um, but they've moved away from that. They've actually taken out all the military language, right? So any sergeants or lieutenants that are there, you you don't say those those names, right? It feels very authoritative and military. They um, try to. He said they use de-escalation now is what they try to use as techniques instead of you know yelling and screaming and and watching you know the 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 staff right uh, we're not allowed to call them guards we call them staff right because that's another way that they've mm-hmm. sort of tried to shift the narrative they the way that they interact with the students too right is sort of on a human level um and they've had huge success with that right and right. and that's because you're not yelling at them all day telling them that they're they're bad and things like that you know it, it helps and and dr key don't you have a different kind of experience though as far as um your relationship with the um, long-term adult prisoners is humor one of the ways that you can really build that relationship without um, overriding or even being restricted by institutional laws and and the, the restrictions of the prison system absolutely in any job, you have rules you have to abide by. In, in prison, as you might imagine, those rules are very, very strict. <laughs> but it's one of those things where I can go in and I, I can teach them the material, and that's all well and good. But I'm not going to get that same interaction if it's not something that's interesting to them. Mm-hmm. So whether that's actually making jokes or giving them the freedom to make jokes back. I, I always tell them I'm, I was a fat kid for most of my life, and I've been going bald since I was 20, so I probably heard it all, but please try to be original. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make fun of them, too. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll come up with fun nicknames. Uh, everybody in prison has a nickname, and I, I have a habit of trying to change them. I had a, one guy in my class, and everyone called him Turbo because when he came in, he was super obese, but he lost a bunch of weight, so it wasn't fun anymore. <laughs> so I started calling him Alfalfa because he sounds exactly like Alfalfa from Little Rascals, and eventually he picked up. Um, had another guy, we traded barbs, and he's like, yeah, Mr. Key, you, uh, yeah, was it? you look, our whole body looks like a popsicle. You know, blah, blah. I was like, dude, you got some baby teeth. Like, you never lose those things. And, People still call him baby teeth on the unit. It's pretty fantastic. But it's it's those times when you're all collectively laughing and everybody's having a good time that you and they forget even for the briefest of moments that you're in prison. And it's those small things you take for granted when you're hanging out with friends and just able to everybody be laughing at something that you don't really get a lot of when you're incarcerated. So by doing that, even though you know, there are rules against all kinds of other stuff, I can find those spaces of things I'm allowed to do and use humor to make everyone feel, at least for my class, a little bit more human. Yeah, and, and it's a really good pedagogical tool as well, right? So, you know, we try to use humor a lot with the case studies we give them when we're going through ethical mm-hmm. theories and, uh, you know, some of the examples we use. And we try to speak the way they speak, right, which right. they always get a kick out of because... We're, we're not street, you know, at all, right? But we try and talk like them and they always get a kick out of it. Uh, and, you know, kind of like the other day when we were uh, teaching them virtue ethics and we're going through, you know, having them list virtues and then saying, okay, what are the vices of these, right? And they they got stuck on what the vice would be for, for loyalty, right? What the opposite of that would be. 
and you know, I just started whispering really loudly. I was like, snitches, <laughs> you know, and they all laugh. And but they remembered that. So the next time when they came back, you know, they they remember the joke I made, and then they they knew could remember a little bit more about about virtue ethics. Right. Yeah. Do you guys um, can you show videos and such when you teach? You know, Brother Wayne would film a little bit for the outside uh, mm -hmm. group, but yeah. So and and there was a instance where he was going to allow us to show a YouTube video on philosophy. Mm -hmm. So we can do something with that outside population. I'm not so sure about the 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 long term yeah. um, students. That, that's one of the things is uh, we can so I say you know, they're short and relevant the course material and yeah. the beauty of teaching communication is there are a lot of videos out there that are relevant. Mm -hmm. So. I'll do what I can to find like you know humorous things to illust or illustrate you know, like, communication concepts, and the thing is like we get so numb to it yeah you know, because we see new YouTube funny videos every day, but you got to remember they've never seen these things because they don't make it on TV so it's new and funny to them. So I always open my lesson on listening with that that little three year old yelling at his mom like listen Linda, mm -hmm. and it it catches their eye and then they'll they'll go around repeating the stuff but also when they're laughing they're also warning. And like you said, it helps them remember stuff. Um, kind of to, to jump onto that idea, um, another question that we had for you was uh, regarding empathy within teaching styles, um, which is something that y'all have already talked about a little bit. Um, of course, you know, we understand that the teacher needs to have empathy with the students while expecting empathy in return. And, and really that kind of creates this learning environment that really enhances the learning experience. So my question for all of you is, what role does empathy play in education? Is it a driving force for learning? Um, and of course, we've seen recidivism rate disappear when inmates earn degrees, they don't go back to jail, um, and we could potentially save billions of dollars by using prisons as educational platforms, something that you all have experienced in your work. It kind of breaks this cycle of incarceration within families and communities. Does it all start with empathy, uh, learned not only by your students, but by our society in general? I think in a lot of ways it, it, it does because empathy is very humanizing, right? And it's sort of something that says, hey, we're on this equal playing field. And what, I don't know about, you know, your population that you work with, uh, Adam, but, but with ours, you know, the, these teenagers, their you know, social status is so salient to them, right? And, you know, we have particular students who when we would work with the the parole population that lives at home and they would come to the classes, right? Sometimes they wouldn't show up because we find out they've been moved to long term mm -hmm. because they got in a fight or, you know, they had to post up on someone, right? That they're always talking about posting up. Uh, and, you know, it, they, they realize that there's these dynamics where not everyone's on a level playing field and it makes them uncomfortable and it makes them lash out sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and especially if that's how society is telling them that they, they have to act, right? And so by coming in and, and showing a certain level of empathy towards them, you know, it, 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 it helps you kind of put everyone on an equal level so they're more accepting of, of learning from you, right? Where it doesn't feel like you're talking down to them anymore. It, it feels like you're trying to have a conversation, mm -hmm. right? And I also think it's uh, one of the huge steps that's necessary for those students to be able to regain their autonomy because in some sense they have lost their autonomy autonomy in the sense that because they are locked up, they have to follow certain rules, they have to follow certain procedures, um, they are deemed now in uh, a certain way uh, by society, 
And so they, they have been stripped from, from, from that autonomy. And I think being able to empathize with them, being able to work with them, talk to them, knowing that, that they actually do matter, that what they say is important and is relevant to making a community better, refills or, or brings back that, that sense of autonomy of, of I need to take control of my life and I can't take control of my life. And I think empathy is one way to, to, to start that. And, and I know, um, Dr. Key, that you made a contrast between sympathy and empathy. Um, could you tell us more about that? Interpersonal communication, one of the most important distinctions that we teach is between sympathy and empathy. And students have a hard time getting that, the difference between feeling bad for someone's sympathy and empathy about putting yourself uh, in their shoes, trying to see the world from their perspective. So... And I, I go into this in my, in my TEDx talk as well, but the, the idea that, you know, this is a difficult concept, students will argue with you about. And I had a, an exam where this happened, and students were demanding that I give them credit for saying sympathy and empathy are the same thing. And one of them pulls out a thesaurus and says, look, right here is a synonym. So I tell them this story about when I was teaching high school and how words don't mean the same, where... I had a kid start a paper with the phrase, uh, for this assignment, I engaged in intercourse with my father. And I was flabbergasted and had no idea how to respond to that until I realized reading the paper, he was talking about a conversation. Because this high school student, trying to sound smart like many people have, went to Microsoft Word and used the thesaurus to get bigger words. In conversation right next to discourse is intercourse. And ever since then, uh, well, the first time this happened, uh, students started writing, uh, what do you like best about this course? Having intercourse with Mr. P. <laughs> and ever since this TEDx, uh, this happened, I think last fall, there were nine separate intercourse references on my <laughs> evaluations. Um, in fact, uh, one of, when I came in, I was like, I finished my PhD. They were like, you have a PhD in communication? I'm like, yeah. They're like, so you're a doctor of intercourse. <laughs> but let's get a couple things clear. Uh, first, uh, recidivism, empathy is certainly important. Uh, recidivism is reduced primarily because most crime is economic. Uh, most people are in crime for some economic reason, robbery, theft, uh, drug dealing, assault, or you know, other violent acts in relation to these things. The reason recidivism drops is because when they get out and they, they can make good money, as opposed to having to go to underground economies like theft or dealing pot or any other uh, type of drugs, then what you see is they start making money and they start contributing more and don't go back to prison. However, we cannot get there if our students won't receive education in the first place. And empathy is a very important thing. And I was having a, a conversation uh, with a new faculty the other day, asking, you know, it's a first semester teaching. And she said, well, you know, they're, they're not as engaged as my students I taught before. And I said, well, what time are you teaching? You know, noon and then one at six. I said, well, you know what time they get up, don't you? And she didn't. Uh, the thing is, in Texas, my students are getting up at two in the morning and typically working eight hours a day, a lot of times hard labor, working in the fields or whatever. So by the time they get to class, they're already exhausted from a full day's work. And if you understand that, you're empathetic to their situation. That's why we don't do a lot of lecturing. That's why we have more engaging activities that get them up and moving or discussing. Because try taking a three-hour once-a-week class when you've been up for 14 hours and been outside working for eight. You're going to need something else like that. So empathy is not just teaching them to respect other people, 
it's also understanding their reality and adapting your teaching style to that. Yes, good. That's uh, so incredibly important. Um, I do have a question for you, Dr. Key, about um, the specifics of teaching debate um, in that it just uh, seems to dovetail with uh, philosophical ideas of the dialectic. And my question was, does debate and dialectical tools tie into the prisoners learning about themselves? Is it become an art of debate or an art of the dialectic? And does such critical thinking lead many of your students to a more confident outlook and an enriched sense of self-worth? I, I would definitely say so uh, for a number of reasons. And actually, if you want to hear one of my students talk about this, uh, TEDx Lee College, Huntsville, David M. Uh, gives a speech called Why We Should Teach Debate in Prison. He is, was the captain of my prison debate team. He's actually since been released. But teaching students the ability to argue both sides of an issue requires that they know how to view both sides of an issue without demonizing either side. And this type of uh, you know, thought process expands their ability to see their own views because now they start considering both sides of every issue or not even just both, the multiple sides of any particular issue. And by teaching them to be able to articulate and advocate uh, for both those sides, what you see is a very developed sense of how the world works and also how their own thought process happens, because they have to be able to advocate and assemble arguments on any particular side of an issue on any particular given debate round or any given day. But what I've seen in that is not just the argument itself, but they actually had something to be excited about. And when I was coaching, I've coached for about a decade now, and I've coached multiple national champions. I've been a national champion myself, but I have never seen a debate team progress as quickly. And even, even now, like I guarantee you this weekend, on Friday night and Saturday night, they will gather in the chapel by themselves for the most part and be doing debate practice. They... <laughs> They gathered money to buy textbooks and flow pads and timers. But what I also saw was a, a real change in them. Because as they learned to speak up and you know show that their voice has value and uh, the ability to think through things, they started seeing different reactions from their fellow prisoners, from guards, from wardens, and from their families. I, I had a student who uh, had not had any contact with his mom in 10 years. He'd been trying for a decade to get back in touch with her. And he was on the debate. And we put it on YouTube, uh, as we've done with both the debates. And uh, somebody saw it in Senator and said, I think that's your son. And she saw it and she wrote him a letter for the first time in a decade. And it was because he had learned to critical think and to argue and to deliberate this opportunity presented itself and he was able to you know, deal with that. So after that happened, he wrote me a letter and uh, in the process of that, but first of all, one of the other debaters gives me the letter in the middle of class and I made the mistake of starting to try to read it, which is bad to try to get emotional for your students. Uh, but it always stuck with me. Uh, what he said in there is, you know, not only, you know, thanking me for believing them, but saying when he was up there and his arguments were being valued uh, that he felt like a human, that he mattered for the first time in a long time. And, and I think that's the real value of this, is 
Critical thinking reminds them that even though they're being told and given this argument over and over and over that you're a criminal, that you're irredeemable, that you don't matter, teaching them to debate, teaching them the dialectic, teaching them how to argue lets them respond to those arguments and say, yes, I do matter, and here are the reasons why. And on a you know a really basic level too, it just lets them be heard for for an hour, right? You know, in the case of our our class, and was it when uh when we first started and we were you know telling Brother Wayne what we were wanting to do, right? Uh, we were kind of worried about if they were actually going to engage and and talk with us, right? Mm-hmm. And he, he's like, no, no, that that's not going to be a problem. They they're going to talk the entire time. No one ever listens to them. That's that's what they want. They they want people to listen to them and be heard, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's why that the dialectic right is so important um because you know one we're taking them seriously when a lot of people aren't taking them seriously right um and as a teenager you're in this stage of your life to begin with where you feel like adults don't take you seriously um and then when you're in the position they're in it just sort of compounds right, right. and and so um you know it's really good for them to be be heard then but also are, it's strange. One thing I've I think I've I've learned a little bit since teaching here at Texas State is people tend to think our ideas are are part of our identity, right? And so by by listening to someone's ideas and the things that they they feel deeply about, it it's almost like you're taking them seriously as a person, right? Because it's hard for people to disconnect their ideas from from their identity in a lot of ways, right? And I think they the the second group of students that we worked with, um, the more long term students, uh, recognized this. I forgot what the lesson was that we were talking about, but there was a certain point within the whole discussion where I had asked the question, you know, if if, if X person commits a certain crime. Um, does not does that now identify who they are and and are they stuck with that label and you know immediately all the students were saying you know what that person you know messed up did whatever action that they did Um, they have to be responsible for what they did but that should not identify who they are for the rest of their lives right there is that chance of uh, that redeeming concept um, that concept of there's more to me than just this one past action and we have to look for for the future yeah that was one of the first things we we talked about when when you pitched making this program to me and gary uh gary fields also is part of this he's another ma lecturer in our department um was you know what kinds of things we want to teach them right and we really wanted to teach them that who they are is malleable right that that who you are is constantly changing and, and you're not born to be this criminal or because you committed a crime or did some kind of you know whatever misdemeanor um, that that doesn't have to follow you. Doesn't have to define you. So right. we do a lot of Hume, a lot of Bryson, a lot of Locke. We do all kinds of. Here's all the different ways you can conceive of the metaphysical self, right? And this is why this is important. And they eat it up. It's one of their yeah. their favorite days, right? Because he, they go, oh, what, you're telling me I can actually change who I am. That's really cool. And oh, I actually have control over who I am, right? And right. It gives them that autonomy again. That, that's really important that they feel like they don't have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yes, and the importance of learning how to ask questions uh, so they can really, um, in a sense, become empowered and activists mm-hmm. for change once they do re-enter uh, society. This goes along with a lot of the things that you've been talking about, um, about critical thinking, empowerment, and 
self-worth, just kind of becoming human through this learning experience. So through uh, all of your experience guiding a prison debate team and working with prisoners and teaching philosophy to them, you've seen how learning leads to empowerment on a different level than when uh, that individual is involved in crime. You've talked about seeing debate and uh, philosophy and these learning experiences as communication tools that could be applied to even different problems that they're experiencing within the the prison system, within uh, the culture that they uh, re-enter when they are released from prison. It's a much more social activity than learning about the law that only involves their own case. Because a lot of these people, when they enter prison, they really do learn a little bit about law because they have to know so much about their own situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but these kind of, the, these skills that they learn while they're there kind of help them discover more about philosophy, debate, and, and law in, in realms other than just their own. So my question for all of you is, do these communication skills have an impact on other problems within the prison system? Have you been aware or have you noticed um, any of the results from your teaching in terms of how it affects the prison culture as a whole? And could that be brought over into other forms of empowerment within the prison culture and improve that culture as a whole? I would say... One of the uh, the biggest things I, I noticed change-wise, and this happens with every group of novice debaters, is it kind of goes through phases. And the very first phase you run into with new debaters is teaching them not just how to argue, but also when not to argue. Because suddenly I, I've taken this group of students who now know how to argue effectively for the first time, and they want to go use their new toy on <laughs> everything. Other professors, guards, wardens, and teaching them that there is a time and place for this type of thing is certainly certainly good. But beyond that, once they and by the way, this is not just a prisoner thing. Like I, I've coached debate at numerous universities, and you'll be at the end of the tournament. You're driving home from Mississippi back to Texas. And the students are still hyped up in argument mode. And I'm like, dude, I do not hear, need to hear 15 reasons why you don't like Olive Garden. Like, <laughs> they, you know, I, I don't need a full case on this. Like, But on the positive with this, though, um, one of my students actually just got out last Tuesday, uh, full, uh, fully served. And he's taking his skills and using them in a very productive way. He'd actually been offered, uh, several law firms had offered him a job as a paralegal. Uh, he turned them down to go uh, work as an advocate with Texas Cure for Prisoner Rights. And they're doing some really interesting work uh, to, you know, to try to advocate for that. And he, he really paid attention to how you know, advocacy and persuasion work. So uh, one of the things I know they're planning on doing is taking a tractor trailer and then building out two life-size prison cells and raising one to super high temperature and having the other one air-conditioned. They're going to take it around the state and ask people to sit in both of them and ask which one is more tolerable. So he, he's learned how to use that argument skill uh, to really make a difference in people's minds. And as opposed to going out and seeking to make a lot of money, he's not worried about making money. He's worried about making a difference. And, and we see a little bit of that with, with our students as, as well, where they're actually, you know, because with or there are long-term kids, there's... Um, you know, we can only meet with so many because of funding issues and, you know, so we get the Hayes County kids, not the rest of, of the population. And they'll take what we give them and, and use it on the other kids when they get back to their dorms and things, right? So there was a day we were talking about utilitarianism and we give them the trolley problem. Mm-hmm. And then and then one of our students turns around and was like, see, this is that thing I was telling you all about the other day, right? You know, he's all excited and... um 
when we we did Aristotle for virtue ethics, um, you know, some of them were like, "Hey, we we've heard that name before. Where where have we heard that name?" And they had the 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 logo, ethos, pathos, right on on the wall because we were in one of their class classrooms, and and so they all got excited because we told them that's you know ancient Greek, right? And and they're like, "Okay, so we'll tell." Our teachers and everyone, we learned about Aristotle today because it's the thing on the wall, you know, right. and they, um, they they take what we give them and try and use it. And one of our students in particular last semester, he he was very much a leader, right, from, from early on and really tried to hold all the other students um, to the standard that we were setting for them, right, you know, when we, he, because he, he really liked Kant, you know, Kant's very straight-laced and very... Um, even if you don't like it, you have to do it, you know, no, no consequences, just, just do the thing, you know, don't care about consequences. And, and he would say, you know, you got to come here, you got to do this, you, and you have to talk, they've asked you to talk, right? And you have to participate or you're not going to learn anything. And, you know, they, they, they take it very seriously and try to impart it on, on those of, you know, who else is in the class, you know, and, and the people that are sharing dorms with them and stuff. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's really interesting, actually. Because if, if, if you've noticed from both populations that we worked with, there was always one student who, for lack of a better term, was kind of like policing the other students, right? right so if like yeah. things got too rowdy, he would be like, okay, everybody, you know, focus, get back to <laughs> what we were doing. Which is nice because, I mean, it's, it's, it's good that, at least I think it's good that it's not put on us in the sense that, okay, they're not expecting the typical authority figure to tell us to, you know, be quiet and all this stuff. So it's... It, it creates a better group dynamic with the students. I think it makes them feel more comfortable um, that it's not just us telling them certain rules or, or things that they should um, um, be looking forward to, but other students also are, are helping each other out. The self-teaching thing is really impressive. Um, mm -hmm. My debate program at the Walls Unit, which is probably the most infamous unit in Texas because it's where they execute people, is... Um, that's the death chamber, by the way, is completely separate from the rest of you. But that's where my debate program is. And I did the first debate with A&M. They're like, we want to keep this going. And I'm like, I have classes to catch up on and everything. So I'm like, we'll, we'll pick this back up. Uh, but talk to the warden, see you know, what he says. And the warden gave him permission. So they not only did they start meeting on their own, they also started recruiting and then taking what I taught them in teaching new people. So when I would periodically come back in to check on things, would be a bunch of new students who were now debating the way I had taught the original ones to do it. And that was the coolest thing, was to see the fact that this impact just continues to ripple and reverberate beyond that, because as soon as they learn something, they also know it's important to learn to teach other people. And, you know, it's instead of every man for himself, it's everyone trying to help everyone else up, that they all want to rise together. So that's fascinating, and I do have one last question, and I wanted to ask Dr. Key about um, free world citizens, what we might be able to do on an ethical level uh, to really change prison conditions and um, this dehumanizing and this praise-blame uh, society that we live in today. Well, the first thing if we're going to approach this, is to realize this is not a Republican or Democrat issue. It was Joe Biden and Bill Clinton who passed the law to get rid of Pell funding for prison education in the first place. Uh, but it was also Republicans joining in with them. And it's also going to be a Democrat-Republican solution. And this needs to be something that we cross the aisle on. 
But for those of you listening who are not legislators, which will be most of you, uh, here's what you can do uh, separately. Uh, the first one is if you're a boss or you're a manager or you run an apartment complex, stop asking people who apply for the criminal record. Because the fact is when people get out, there's no other thing in society where you owe a debt and you pay, pay it and you still owe more. If you pay off a credit card, they can't come back and ask you for more money. But when you pay off your debt to society by going to prison, you are still stigmatized for it. So stop asking for a criminal record when you do those things. The second thing, and this is you know, the harder one, is interpersonally. When you find out that someone you know, a friend, family member, acquaintance, romantic partner has been in prison, don't run, don't back off, and don't treat them differently. The fact is, people need your support. But if you're on Tinder and somebody pops up and says they have a criminal record, you're going to swipe, uh, swipe left instead of right. Don't do that. The fact is, if we are ever going to have these people back in society, we have to treat them just like we would everybody else. There's not a person out there who hasn't made a mistake, and many people have made mistakes worthy of being in prison and just never caught or never punished for it. So if we're going to move on to society, take a lesson from prisoner students that I teach the ones on the debate team who it was not enough that they succeed. They wanted to teach other people to do so as well. If you learned anything from listening to me here today, it's that if we're going to move forward ethically, it's that we must all rise and all do this together. So instead of putting your hands up to back away from them, put your hand out and shake their hand and welcome them back. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I certainly second that, especially for for people who run businesses and are hiring, right? Um, I mean, we've had issues where students are no longer showing up because they've they've been incarcerated again because they've broken parole. But you know, one of the the caveats is you have to have a job, right? At least for for most of our population mm -hmm. we work with. And if they get fired or no one's hiring them because they have a record, they it's not their fault. You know, they're they're trying what to do what they can do and, and if no one's going to help facilitate that then you're just ensuring that they're going to get picked up again because they're they're you know effectively breaking you know parole and and so one of the things that that we'll also say right about uh, community involvement what other mm -hmm. people can do is uh, one just find these you know we we have the Hayes County Center here right they are constantly, constantly hurting for volunteers, for mentors, for tutors, right? Um, these kids are trying to get into college. They're trying to get their GEDs. They generally struggle with math and reading and things like that. You know, we need more tutors. Um, you can do internships up there, right? So criminal justice students can get internships. Um, uh, there's a couple other sections that that brother Wayne mentioned today that they could have work with with internships, but right, yeah. So he didn't name specific vocational programs, but he did he did mention that they were instituting more more mm -hmm. vocational programs, and with yeah. the, the businesses, right? So um, there's there's also businesses right that have now come in and they they teach vocational skills to to the long term students right mm -hmm. and that gives them a skill that they can learn while they're there that now they can come out and they they have a job and they they want to do things and and, and one thing that our program helps with is we give them a certificate at the end that says you've completed 
X amount of hours in an ethics program, right? And and being able to put that on your resume right. would certainly, at least we think, would help, right? You know, you're someone who's getting asked about your record and you can go, but, you know, aside from paying my debt, right, I also took this ethics course, so I'm super ethical now, right? right. It, you know, it, every every little bit helps, um, you know, giving these kids these tools because they they will absolutely digest all of it and they will absorb everything that you give them. It's just we... We have to give them the tools. We have to educate them. Yeah. To paint a clearer picture, because most people don't see why from their side. Right. Um, you were talking about them losing jobs. Everything reminded me. Uh, if you remember that scene in the movie Ant Man, where he's gotten out of prison, and he's like, "I oh, got to find a job." He's like, oh, "I have a master's in biochemistry." Right. And the next scene yeah. is him working at Baskin Robbins, and then getting fired from Baskin Robbins. Because they found out he has a you know spent time in prison, mm-hmm. and it's meant as a comedic scene. But just remember, that's reality for people getting out of prison. Mm-hmm. Imagine having a master's or a doctorate and getting turned down for a job at McDonald's because you've been locked up. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a business, hire some people, give them that chance. Yeah, you know, let them turn their lives around. Whether they're in the you know the juvenile program or they're just being released from prison, the fact is. I have never met a group of people who are willing to work harder because they have a reason, especially parolees uh, or the ones mm-hmm. who require these things. Because they all they want is a chance to prove that yeah, they're good and ready to return to society. And if America is going to be the land of opportunity, then we need to make sure that prisoners and former prisoners are included in that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Cesar and Jonathan, I would like to um, ask y'all specifically on the program that you work with and sure. how people can get more involved in what you're doing right here in Hayes County. Sure. So I don't know. I should probably give a little bit of, of a background also about the program or at least the way that we that we run it. So we are teaching philosophy there, and essentially what we start out with is is teaching the three uh, moral theories that usually learn in any any philosophy program right so virtue ethics Kant, and utilitarianism and after learning those tools they're able to apply them in different case studies that we give them um, some are really intense case studies some are you know just casual trying to break the ice and then afterwards we we go into different topics of philosophical relevance right so like things on identity on cultural relativism Intellectual freedom. Intellectual freedom. And, uh, so we do some stoicism too. Stoicism actually is is probably one of the best ones that we can do. Epictetus was a slave and a prisoner, so that's something that they could relate um, to. Relate to. And so, if you want to contact us, we are located in the philosophy department. My email is c underscore b four six four at texasstate.edu. You could shoot me an email and we could definitely set something up. Or you could also email Jonathan. Yeah, and, uh, my email is uh, jel111 at txstate.edu. And, you know, if you're wanting to become involved in any capacity, right, we can certainly point you in the right direction. So so Brother Wayne Thompson is the leader of the, the Hayes County Youth Initiative, right, is initially where we started. And they're in charge of doing a bunch of programs for themselves. And then uh, Joel Ware is moreover the the long-term population right and they're mm-hmm. you know certainly always 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 looking for volunteers or people to work or people to just come in and actually talk to these kids for once right um mm-hmm. their mentorship program is huge they they do it on thursday nights at least you know right yeah. after we we talk with them which is cool because now at least the the kids we work with 
have so many programs available to them at this point, right? Where they get up in the morning, they go to class, they go to another class. And by the time we get them at, at 5.30 in the afternoon, they, they haven't had a break yet because they're yeah. constantly just all day, right? And it's, but they can only do it with that small group of, you know, maybe five or six kids. And so right. they, they really want to expand it to the rest of the population, but they, they need volunteers, they need tutors, they need people to, to help with that so they can do it. But, um, but yeah, certainly can, can come to us in the mm -hmm. department or, or email us, yeah. And uh, Dr. Key, any public resource where um, our listeners can go and find out more about your programs? Absolutely. We call it Huntsville Center has uh, quite a bit online, uh, both on we.edu, but also if you want to uh, learn and also help us out more and beyond the monetary stuff, I mean, we, we do have a second chance scholarship fund, but what would really help us is more exposure. So if you look up hashtag prison debate, all one, uh, one word, you can find both the debates where my prison team beat both Texas A&M and Wiley College's great debaters. Please watch those. Please comment. Please share those. Please you know, like them on YouTube. And the same thing with TEDx Lee College Huntsville. We have six great speakers uh, who went, uh, were up there. Please watch those, particularly David M's speech, who is himself incarcerated. And keep watching because we have another TEDx Lee College Huntsville coming to another prison unit, hopefully this summer or early fall, to support these types of things. Please help make these things go viral. Let people see particularly in the case of the debates, prisoners showing their critical thinking and debating skills against some of the best universities in the country or even the world. You know, help change people's minds of what prisoners can do by showing instead of just telling. I want to thank all of you um, for joining us here today. This has been really insightful, um, a really important conversation to have as well. Um, and uh, Rebecca and I both uh, thank all of you for your input and, and spending time with us today. This has been Philosophy Mixed on KTSW 89.9.